Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben from the Lean Blog. This is episode number 20 of the podcast for March 18th, 2007. Our guest today is Kevin Meyer from the Evolving Excellence blog, and we're going to be talking about a number of his blog posts and case studies. So if you haven't done so before, I invite you to check out the post on my blog for this episode of the podcast to see links uh, to those different topics that we're talking about. The easiest way to visit that would be to go to www.leanpodcast.org, or you can visit the regular blog site at leanblog.org. Well, our guest today is Kevin Meyer from Superfactory and the Evolving Excellence blog. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Thank you. Um, it's a question I like to ask a lot of our guests, and I thought we'd start off with um, a question about um, how you got started with Lean and, and kind of what, what drew you into the field. I probably got started uh, thinking about it back in the oh, mid-1990s. I was with... Uh, uh, Abbott Laboratories at the time, we were building a new facility and we were trying to figure out how to lay it out and uh, looking around for the best ways of processing material um, without having to do a lot of uh, inspection, a lot of value or additional operations. And uh, we came across uh, Lean and uh, Womack's first book and we were going through some of that and mm-hmm. uh, took it from there. Um, Tried to lay out the new building to allow for straight process flows, uh, and then some cells in some areas, and uh, really just could not find uh, a lot of online resources. And and that's where the Superfactory website started. I just came across some resources that I put out as a, a simple internal list for uh, some of my group, and mm-hmm. some of the other plants wanted access. And uh, before I knew it, some people outside the company wanted access, so I spent about mm-hmm. 10 seconds coming up with uh, the admittedly a little bit cheesy name, and uh, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, grown from there. So Yeah, so when did you get started with the website? Uh, that was back in 97, 98, okay. um, when that first took hold. And as the Internet grew, the website grew, and... Uh, um, it's you know over the last few years it has really taken off with a lot of articles and reviews and uh, just general resources on Lean. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, may know you from uh, the blog that that you started as part of your site. Yeah, I think we we probably started both of our blogs at about the same time um, in uh, late 2004, early 2005, mm-hmm. somewhere along those lines. And uh, for me, it was just an experiment and and some new communication method. I was just exploring it, and it was um, amazing how many people started reading it. Um, you know, and over time, we found what kind of articles people like to hear, and the, the feedback, I think, is what really makes it exciting. And I know mm-hmm. you and I have talked that one of the unique uh, things with uh, several of the lean blogs, ours and John Miller's Game of Pantare mm-hmm. and all is we all seem to, to feed on each other. It's not like some of the political ones where there's a lot of competition between the yeah. blogs. There's not a lot of sniping back and forth. Um, I've, I've, yeah, like, I, I agree. I've enjoyed that it's a, a pretty cooperative, friendly community of blogs, which I, I think is a nice thing. So, you know, there have been, you know, some hot buttons, uh, you know, we've each hit on that. Uh, but I think, 
I look at it as just a way of expanding the box that people think in. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we wonder, you know, whether we need to be 100% accurate or really research mm-hmm. the articles. But uh, in my mind, it's, uh, you know, getting ideas out there for people to think about. And I, I think we often hit some hot buttons on that. And we have uh, forced some people to think about some ideas. Yeah, and I, I guess when you write a book, you only get you know one chance to do it right the first time. So there's a little different <laughs> uh, burden, I guess. You know, you're doing the blog. I mean, I know this is the, the the case on mine. You know, the the nice thing, even though I try to do it right the first time, if you're wrong, somebody will tell you, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I learn a lot in the process from that. But there's very very quick feedback on uh, what people think, which I actually find very exciting, uh, seeing how other people think and how other people react. And, you know, being corrected on something helps me learn. Uh, the blog and website, for that matter, has uh, been uh, a huge learning experience for me, and that's that's what I get out of it, what I mm-hmm. learn and uh, the people I meet. Um, you know, I don't know how I'd meet people, you know, like uh, Jim Womack and, you know, um, Bodek and mm-hmm. some of them uh, otherwise. Yeah. Well, I definitely have links to uh, to your blog over at my site. For those of you listening, it's um, www.evolvingexcellence.com, right, Kevin? Right. Okay. Right. Certainly encourage everyone to go check that out if you haven't already. Uh, now, the, the main reason we got together today was to talk about um, a topic that Kevin is going to be uh, moderating a session on at uh, my alma mater from undergrad at Northwestern University. He's going to be at the Kellogg School of Management talking about um, a term and a topic called insourcing. So I was hoping, um, Kevin, you could kind of introduce us to that topic and why it's important and how it relates to lean. Well, this is something that has become sort of a hot button for me, or uh, a very high interest level for me, is companies that have been able to create a competitive competency uh, by operating from U.S.-based factories. There's a lot of companies that believe you have to go overseas and chase low labor rates in order to be uh, competitive. Uh, and we've uh, quite honestly blasted several of them in the blog for doing that. Um, in the lean world, uh, those of us that have dealt a lot with lean, you look at the, the total cost of procurement or cost of manufacturing and you start to realize that having boatloads of uh, product on the high seas for a couple of months uh introduces a lot of cost to the system mm-hmm. and it's definitely not value from the customer's perspective. Um, so what we have found are several companies that can operate and have found ways to operate very effectively from U.S.-based factories. Um, they focus on their own internal waste uh, as opposed to just strictly labor cost and uh, have found that by reducing their internal waste, they can more than offset that uh, labor costs, and they save the knowledge that those employees have and uh, shorten the supply chain, uh, quicker cycle times to their customers. Uh, there's a lot of value there from the perspective of the customer. Um, this particular conference, um, again, it's something that uh, came to me as a result of the blogging, um, is put on by Kellogg, uh, and they have a, an annual manufacturing business conference that the uh, MBA students put on. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, this year it'll be May 12th, uh, and it is open to everyone. You can you can go to the the link on the website uh, to sign up, okay. and uh, they have actually added a uh, a panel discussion on uh, domestic manufacturing as a competitive advantage. 
Um, several of the companies that will be on that panel are ones that we've talked about on the blog. Uh, Harley-Davidson, for one, uh, mm-hmm. Cheryl Manufacturing as another, and there are a few more that we're waiting to hear from. And you know, they, they operate globally and very competitively from U.S.-based factories. Yeah. Other than you know trying to get the word out you know, about Lean or, or through conferences like this, I mean, you mentioned the you know the, the the common perception that you have to go overseas nowadays for manufacturing. Uh, a lot of that is is not just in the manufacturing companies, but it's driven in the mainstream media. I mean, a lot of articles are written almost from the standpoint of you know if they find somebody still building something in the U.S., there's like you know this shock and amusement of you know oh, how quaint we're still building stuff here. I mean, is, is there anything we can do to try to try to influence that perspective? Is that something we're just going to have to deal with until there's a you know kind of a, a major reawakening that manufacturing can be beneficial here? Well, I think uh, conferences like this and panel discussions like this will help that. Uh, you're absolutely right. I've come across some furniture manufacturers that could not raise capital because their investors believed they had to go overseas to be competitive, mm-hmm. even though they had proven via some lean methods that they could operate effectively from the U.S. Yeah. Um, and that's really, you know, it, it's driving some major decisions in that lines. We've, you know, and uh, the perception goes all the way down to some small companies. We know of a, uh, a couple of custom ski manufacturers that produce all of maybe one container load of skis a year that are setting up plants and uh, relationships in China mm. to build those skis mm-hmm. um, for just a, a tiny volume. And the, the labor cost on some of it is not all that high. So you're right. The perception does need to be changed. I'm hoping that... Uh, uh, panel discussions like this will start to change it in the mainstream media. Um, you know, there are some organizations that are large, uh, Dana Her being one mm-hmm. that you know, does operate very effectively from the U.S. Uh, Harley Davidson is very high profile as well. Um, so the that we can point out those successes, the better. Yeah, and I know on on your blog you've got a list of kind of you know the good list of the companies that are have got good case studies at least. I'll, I'll make sure I link back to that um, on on my website on on the posting about this podcast so people can go back. There are a lot of um, encouraging examples. I mean, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. furniture. There's a company um, sort of in my backyard here in the Dallas area called American Leather that um, is building furniture here uh, in Texas. You know with Texas labor rates and, you know, their, their competitive advantage is, you know, the, the fast response time that they can do, you know, they're sort of like the Dell computer, uh, of furniture in a way, you know, how they portray themselves that, you know, we can do custom and we can do it at a, you know, a surprisingly affordable rate, um, because of lean processes within their factories. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's a great example. Um, now, have you seen any examples? Of, of companies that have um, maybe previously made an attempt at going overseas to to China or even down to Mexico, which is a, a common low labor cost company or country, um, people coming back and, and sort of repatriating production, if you will, back to the U.S. There are a few. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I came across a couple of plants of Jostens that uh, were moving back um, there. There are some suppliers of Home Depot that are doing the same thing. Home Depot, um, you would think that that'd be very high volume that'd be made overseas, but, uh, Home Depot is trying to shorten their supply chains and, and do, uh, 
shorter cycle times on some of their changes. And uh, to be able to accomplish that, uh, some of the, their suppliers are having to move back to the U.S. Um, just today I wrote about uh, Avery Dennison, and they're consolidating uh, a distribution center and a couple of manufacturing plants and increasing the size of their plant in Marion, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. uh, could actually entail the closing of a Mexican plant to, to accomplish that. So I think when... Uh, Companies look at their total cost and uh, the amount of cash they have tied up in supply chains and uh, total risk cash mm-hmm. tied up in product that, uh, you know, especially if it has an expiration or is uh, beholden to, you know, changes in what the customer wants, um, there's, a, there's a true value in short cycle times. Absolutely. And it, it seems like so far, I mean, we both of us like to criticize uh, you know, companies or executives who who make you know some some of these decisions, but it seems like we've identified three maybe systemic causes already of either you know media perception, mm-hmm. um, you know the the financial community, and um, uh, retailers. Um, I mean, have you seen other? I know you've written about um, other examples of of retailers either helping uh, encourage lean practices or at the other extreme forcing uh, manufacturers overseas. Correct. Well, there are retailers that want to receive uh, their product in large container loads into uh, large distribution channels, you know, Walmart being one very big one. Um, and to accomplish that with very thin margins, um, you're almost forced to go overseas. But I think as, uh, you know, maybe customers start to demand more and more unique products built exactly how they want them and have changing desires, that may uh, force the need for shorter cycle times. It sort of strikes me, you know, um, Walmart has talked a lot about, um, you know, environmental um, stewardship and, you know, pushing things like, you know, uh, compact fluorescent bulbs and, and things that they say are good for the environment. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. pushing suppliers overseas and either the pollution that's caused uh, with, with the, the Chinese manufacturing or all of the, the fuel and the, the transportation waste of bringing products over from an environmental context doesn't necessarily seem to, to fit in as, as the, the, the greenest approach. That's very true. I mean, we, we hear about some of the uh, human rights issues going on in China and uh, the pollution issues. And I, I think one that I'm also very concerned about for uh, companies that have just blindly gone over there um, is the, the rapid increase in the wage rates in China. That That's going to uh, demolish the very fundamental financial rationale for going over there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, in my mind, there's really uh, only a couple of valid reasons for going offshore, and probably the predominant being to get closer to a customer. If you're mm-hmm. going to right. try to go after the Chinese market itself, obviously it makes sense to to build a plant in China if there are significant shipping costs and so on involved. But uh, um, otherwise, uh, you know, to your customer, Toyota is very successful in the U.S. Um, uh, they don't feel a need to uh, com- complain about uh, competitiveness uh, burdens. So, you know, the, the one uh, example I like to point out is American uh, Apparel in, um, in Los Angeles, where they have 4,000 workers earning above minimum wage, making just very basic T-shirts, mm-hmm. and uh, and they pay excellent benefits. Uh, the employees like to work there, and uh, they have uh, higher margins than uh, product coming from Asian sweatshops. So if they can do it, you would think almost anyone could. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, 
I mean, it, it seemed like stories like that don't really get out as much as, uh, as, uh, as they could to help people see there, there is a different way than going offshore. Um, and in fact, earlier, I think I used the wrong phrase. I think I said, um, insourcing the, the topic for the conference really is onshoring as opposed to offshoring, correct? Right. It's, they're related. Insourcing yeah. would be uh, moving your factory back to the U.S. Uh, onshoring, they're staying in the U.S. to begin with, or staying domestic. I think there are probably similar situations in all countries. Of uh, you know, we I just written about where in uh, New Zealand, some people are proposing that uh, New Zealand manufacturing companies should move their factories offshore to actually augment New Zealand manufacturing, which mm-hmm. doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, but uh, there are a lot of co- uh, countries that are dealing with this very same issue of seeing their manufacturing base go elsewhere. Yeah, because even, I mean, China's still a relatively long boat trip from New Zealand, you know, not, not as far as the U.S., but... I think another major issue that a lot of companies don't think about when they're doing this is just the, the value of the knowledge of their employees. That's not tracked on any balance sheet, but... Uh, you know, Whirlpool is laying off you know, thousands of people uh, to move uh, operations to Mexico. And, uh, you know, what is the value of 2,000 people at, uh, I think it was an average of 21 years of experience compared to mm-hmm. the 2,000 people they're hiring at a new plant that are brand new off the street? Um, you know, from a lean perspective, you're looking to your people to give you ideas on how to improve your operations and improve your productivity, um, people with 21 years of experience would probably have a lot better ideas on where to look for improvements. And and, and somehow that's not really valued or, or respected. Um, I mean, it seems like there's too much of a perception if you haven't really worked in a factory and haven't worked side by side with you know, production operators and, and the value-added employees that uh, and I, I say this as an MBA graduate um, myself of, of a different school, that maybe there's a certain MBA arrogance of, you know, well, I have a master's degree and you barely got through high school. What could you possibly know about making anything better, right? Right, right. If if you don't actually visit the factory floor and probably if you don't visit other functions within the company for that matter, uh, you're looking at it just purely based on the uh, wage rate or cost of that operation. And then it becomes, in, in your mind, a very simple financial decision of uh, you know $19 an hour versus $4 an hour or something like that. And um, it's not that simple. There's a lot of intangibles that, unfortunately, are not reflected on a balance sheet or a P&L mm-hmm. that uh, help drive manufacturing. Yeah. So it's a no-brainer only if you're looking at it in a very simple-brained type, type view, maybe. <laughs> right. And that, that becomes difficult to change, you know, especially in a public company when you're beholden to investors that often have a very short time horizon. Um, you know, they're looking for a quick return. And uh, you know, driving down base labor costs is a very easy way of driving a quick return. Unfortunately, it's not a good way of driving long-term success. Right. Well, good. Um, I was if, I'll make, again, I'll make sure that there are links um, on the website if listeners want to go to leanpodcast.org. But if you could remind us again in closing the uh, the name of the conference that you're speaking at, and then also um, tell our listeners about um, the book that, that you've had released off of the blog. Okay. The uh, conference 
is actually sponsored by uh, the Kellogg School at, at Northwestern. And um, it's called uh, the Manufacturing Business Conference. It's on May 12th. Uh, you can learn more about that. Uh, there's a link on uh, my blog at evolvingexcellence.com and also uh, at the uh, Kellogg School at uh, Northwestern. Okay. And then uh, you're right. We had uh, my co-blogger Bill Waddell and I had uh, taken several of our best posts and uh, at the suggestion of some of our readers and mm-hmm. turned them into a uh, book that we just published a couple months ago. Um, and one advantage of the book is it's just a very easy read. They're short stories, basically. You can <laughs> mm-hmm. read one or two a night. So it's a, a, a perspective. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I'm, I'm holding a copy of it here. I think you're selling it short. When you say a few stories, it's 400 some pages. <laughs> it's a uh, quite a collection of uh, short stories and, and good blog posts. So. <laughs> Yep, I think you'll you'll find the same thing when you when you look back on how much you write when you're blogging. It's it's rather astounding. Uh, 458 pages was probably cutting out two thirds of what we'd written. So um, uh, it, it's uh, blogging is an interesting endeavor. Yeah, and it's the uh, the easiest format, at least these days, for reading the blog on an airplane. So that's one other <laughs> good benefit of that. So. Uh, I'm glad that's out there and, and wish you luck with, uh, with the book and with the conference and of course continued, um, success with the, um, the website and the blog. I certainly, you know, it's part of my daily blog reading and, you know, hope others will uh, continue to make it so. Well, yours is definitely part of my daily reading as well. Well, it's been great having you here on the podcast. I appreciate you taking time out today, Kevin. It's, uh, been interesting to explore this new, uh, medium as well. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.